media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. All right. Um, So I will be continuing uh, our, uh, our series in Mark. If you've been here, you know that we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we are uh, approaching, we're in the Passion Week, um, and so naturally, if you're anything like me, you might already have it Mark, kind of where we are, bookmarked in your Bible, go ahead and forget that for a minute, turn to Isaiah 5. Um, so, one of the cheesy kind of dad things I do, I've got three daughters, they're seven, five, and two. And one of the cheesy kind of things I like to do is when we're all watching a movie together as a family, there's usually a part somewhere maybe getting towards the end where things get really bad. Maybe the friends have had an argument. Maybe it looks like the bad guy's going to win. Something like that. Um, an example might be Homeward Bound. Does anybody remember the movie Homeward Bound? So you got the part where like Shadow's in the muddy pit, you know, towards the end, and it doesn't look like Shadow's going to get out. His legs hurt. He's an old dog. He might not make it home. That's the part where I would just probably press the home button and be like, whoa, that was a sad movie. The end. Bedtime. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, the girls roll their eyes. But, and they have, they've come to know that instinctively that's not how the movie's going to end, Dad. Come on. Like, they, they're sad. They might even be crying, but they know that's not the end. They know that, you know, spoiler alert, the movie came out in 1993. <laughs> Shadow's going to make it out and he's going to make it home. And it's going to be a really happy ending, okay? And they kind of instinctively know that. Um, here in Isaiah 5, though, we don't get that happy ending. Um, this, uh, just to, to kind of place it in context, is, is, uh, Isaiah is, is a prophet. This is late in Israel's history. This is, this is, uh, hundreds and, uh, a long time after they've left Egypt. Um, and and the the kingdom of Israel is really coming to an end here. Um, God's judgment is upon them. If you know anything about the story of the Old Testament, it's kind of a story over and over and over again of Israel uh, uh, rebelling against God, not following God's commandments, and then and then coming back and there being forgiveness and back and forth, back and forth. They weren't out of slavery in Egypt for one second before they were already complaining about it being hot in the desert and not having food and wanting to go back into slavery. And it was kind of that story over and over and over again until finally uh, in Isaiah, um, God's judgment is, is finally coming upon Israel. And so beginning in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1, it says, Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also carved out a wine vat in it. He then expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now God is the vineyard owner here. And he has made the, he has done everything one could possibly do to set this vineyard up for success. It's on a fertile hill. He didn't, he, he went and made sure he was picking out the best soil. He tilled the soil and removed any stones, so he prepared 
to, to uh, um, he prepared for the plants. He, then he planted the best vines. He went and found, you know, the top shelf vines at, at Home Depot. Okay, the best ones. And he erected a tower so that the wine could be produced right there. And then after producing, or after providing so much, he would expect good grapes. But instead, there were only worthless ones. Verse 4 tells us, just skipping down a bit, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? He did everything to set up the vineyard for success. He provided everything. I know I often, I've, I've come up on this from time to time, and there's, there's, an, uh, there's, a, there's a huge frustration there. For example, right now, I have a tree that I have planted in my backyard. Anybody who's been to my house knows I've got a big backyard with almost no trees. There's no shade, and so we needed trees. And I've had pretty good success with everything I've done, but I planted a tree this year, no matter what I do, I planted it right. I put down compost. I've made sure it's been watered. Um, it's everything has been done, and it is. And I just had to chop off like half of it because it was it was dying. It was getting disease and spreading. I've done everything I can. I've sprayed it. I've done all the stuff, and I'm getting frustrated that I'm just about ready to chop the thing down because all I do is keep working and trying to get it to flourish, and it's just never done well in the backyard. Um, a similar experience is maybe like when you're putting together or something uh, and you follow the directions and the directions, you know, they, they say do this and you follow them to a T and somehow it's not looking like it was supposed to look. Maybe in the kitchen, like you did all the things in the recipe and somehow this, this, this cake has just like fallen apart, right? Like the consistency is not just there. What did I do wrong? There's a frustration there, okay? Um, and so verse 5, um, we, uh, we start seeing that wrath, that frustration, that anger. So it says, now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And so here we, we see that there was even more done for this vineyard. There was a hedge and a wall protecting it. And he's going to remove those things so it will be consumed by weeds. Animals can come and eat whatever sour grapes are there and trample over it. Continues in verse 6. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned nor hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds not to rain on it. So this this thing has been completely given up. And, I, and I'm going to be honest. I mean, this is this is some pretty... Pretty harsh wrath here. I mean, even me with my tree in the back, I could cut the thing down. I could do a lot. I couldn't not make it rain. But God's bringing that on this. No more rain. Um, briars and thorns not being pruned or hoed. Verse 7 continues um, in explaining the parable. The vineyard is of the Lord of hosts. Is the, is, or the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This vineyard is Israel, God's kingdom. And the people of Judah are his delightful plant. And so he waited for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. He waited for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God has set up Israel to produce good fruit, to, to flourish in the promised land. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, never produced good fruit. This is the end of the parable. This is me turning off the movie, 
at the, at the, in the pit of despair. That's it. It's the sad ending. The vineyard owner did everything to set the vineyard up for success. And yet, no good grapes. Not some good grapes. Not mediocre grapes. But only worthless ones is what it tells us. And this is no knee-jerk reaction by God. This, this wrath being brought down, as I've already explained, I mean, through the Old Testament, Israel has been in rebellion over and over and over again in disobedience to God's word. But Psalm 103.8 tells us that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He is slow to anger. But at this point, God had finally had enough. This isn't some rash, you, you disobeyed me and now I'm angry at you and now you are coming to ruin. This has been a slow burn the whole time. He has given chance after chance. This is the wrath of God. He is wrathful against evil. God hates sin. Now, this is something we usually don't don't like to think about. We don't. It's. Uh, I would say that that more often than not, the the if I asked you to list an attribute of God, the first one that comes to your mind is probably love, and that's a good one, and we like that one. That seems to be more of a positive one to us. But I would I would posit to all of you that that His wrath is also a positive attribute of God. What would it look like if God was not wrathful? Wayne Grudem has a good quote on this. It says, "It may not be it may not be immediately um, apparent to us that this can be done, since wrath seems to be a negative concept. Viewed alone, it would arouse fear and dread. Yet it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if He were a God that did not hate sin." He would then be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Um, there's an old line uh, about a defendant waiting in a courtroom. Um, he's, he's or waiting to go to court. He's nervous. And another inmate assures him, you know, don't worry. You have a good judge here. He's a really fair man. He doesn't, he doesn't punish people who don't deserve it. To which the defendant says back, that's, that's what I'm afraid of. You know, many of you um, may know this. Some of you might not. But I'm I'm a prosecutor. That's 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 what I do for a living. If somebody commits a felony, chances are they come to my it, it, the file hits my desk. And guys, um, I'm sorry to say that sometimes, not often, but sometimes, I have to see guilty people go free. I have to see people who have committed just terrible terrible crimes, unspeakable crimes, go free. Not face the justice that they rightly deserve. And guys, I'll I'll be honest. Um, there have been some long nights where I have to kind of look at the ceiling, <laughs> trying to fall asleep, thinking about justice. And I am, sorry, I'm not usually like this. 
Um, Bobby's way more emotional than I. Um, guys, I have to, I have to tell you, the thing that that I rest in is that I have a just God, yeah. and that there, He is wrathful. He is. He's He's loving. There is grace, but there is also wrath, and that ultimately. There is a justice outside what I can do in a courtroom. And that's true no matter whether there's a guilty verdict or a not guilty verdict. There is justice. The rest of this chapter, um, after the parable, um, lays out six charges against Israel. And I'm not going to go into all of them here. Um, I'll just kind of run through them real quick. But it reads kind of like a six-count indictment. On Israel. Count one is that the wealthy have hoarded their riches. Count two is that they have become a nation of drunkenness and gluttony. Count three is that they have mocked God. Count four is that they have twisted the law to their own ends, making what is evil good and what is good evil. Count five is that they consider themselves wise but shun wisdom. Count six is that they have made a mockery of justice. By letting the guilty go free, and then the innocent rot in jail. And so finally, after convicting them of these six counts, in verses 25 through 30, sentence is rendered. And once again, I'm not going to go all into it, but the, the long and the short of it is that the dead will rot in the streets as foreign nations take over the country and then take the, take what Israelites are still alive captive. They're over. It's done. Death sentence. That is the end of the story. That is the end of Isaiah 5. No happy ending. Just wrath. Righteous wrath. They're guilty of every single thing that happened. And the punishment is death. But wrath all the same. All right, let's get out of that. Let's go to Mark 12. Now, in Mark 12, fast forward several hundred years, and we're in Jerusalem. This is the last week uh, before the cross. Jesus was walking to the temple last week. If you were here, Pastor Bobby preached about um, Jesus' authority um, being questioned by the Pharisees. And so this is the parable Jesus tells after that, okay? He's walking to the temple. He may already be at the temple at this point. Um, and he begins in verse 1 saying, um, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and leased it to vine growers and then went on a journey. So this essentially quotes Isaiah 5. The people listening to this, Everybody in is everybody in Jerusalem for the Passover. They know this one, okay? This is this is this is one that would that would definitely come off their ears, and this is probably one that when they hear it, they think, "Oh, mm, I know this one. It's a sad story. It's 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 not a good ending. I don't like where this is going." Okay. And then he continues in verses two through five, and at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive his share of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then it continues in verse 4. 
And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And then, in, and then it continues. He sent another, and that one they killed. And with so many others, beating some and killing others. Notice, first of all, I, I've always, I've always been struck by this one that, that it seems almost foolish to me. Why does he keep sending people? I mean, after the first one, don't you kind of get the hint? The second one, surely. The third one, they killed somebody. So why would you keep sending them? But then it becomes apparent that this is a vineyard owner who is slow to anger. Probably slower than any of us would have been in that situation, I'd wager. I think I would have um, drawn the line sometime before he did, but he is patiently pursuing them. This is a vineyard owner who, who loves his vine growers. Verse 6 said, He had one more man to send, a beloved son. And he sent him the, he sent the, to he sent him to them last of all, saying, They will respect my son. How many of us would do that? After all of after all of the, everything that happened to the slaves, would, would we then send our beloved son? Our only son? The only reason this makes sense is that these aren't just regular employees to dismiss or, or criminals to be prosecuted. No. The, vine, the vineyard owner loves these vine growers. and He is giving them every chance to repent. Every chance to submit to his authority. That's what we see here in this parable. A radical, overwhelming love for these vine growers. And what do the vine growers do? Well, in verse 7, it tells us that those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. What I find interesting about this is that they still can't, they can't interpret how much love is being done. How much, how each and every person that comes to them is just simply another expression of love and patience for them. And yet, how do they respond? They respond with legal thinking here. They're thinking, how can I bend this to my own enrichment? That's what they're doing. If we kill the heir, then we can inherit it. And then the vineyard's ours. They want to set themselves up as the authority, right? They are thinking how they can use a legal technicality to enrich themselves. This Honestly, it kind of reminds me of some of those counts of the indictment we just listed in Isaiah 5. How they were using the law, right? And so verse 8 tells us that they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is Jesus predicting his death. It's not the first time, but as yet again, he is predicting, predicting his death. Just days before the cross, he is placing himself in this parable, telling us of his role from the vineyard owner to the vine growers, what he is here for and what is about to happen. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be put to death. And he's placing himself right here. And in verse 9 it says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
will he come and put the vine growers to death? Or, or no, sorry, he will come and put the vine growers to death and give the vineyard to others. As in Isaiah 5, wrath is still present. God does not change. Okay? God does not change. The same wrath from Isaiah 5 still exists. It's still in the story. This is constant. But there's a small change here, and it's a, but it's a big one. The, while the Pharisees, the vine growers, those who reject Jesus are, will be destroyed, those, and those who deny Jesus receive death, there is good news. The vineyard will be given to others. The vineyard itself is not destroyed. There's no wall coming down. There's no, uh, there's no, uh, forecast of there not being rain ever again. So the inheritance will pass to others. This story is not hopeless anymore. That's the miracle of this parable here. It's no longer hopeless. It's not the bad news of Isaiah 5. It's the good news of Mark 12. Ephesians 3.6 tells us the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are the heirs. We are those who come in and replace the vine growers. Romans 11.11, the second part of that verse says, But by there, that being the Jewish people's transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Romans 9.25-26 tells us that people who were not my people shall become my people and shall become sons of God. Here we have the good news. By the death of the Son, we will become heirs of the vineyard. This is no longer the sad ending. This is the good news. Here we have the wrath of God and also the love of God. Right here. Within this story, we can see His love and grace, but also His wrath and justice. Here we have the lion and the lamb. St. Augustine um, says, he's, he's one of my, my, uh, my favorites when it comes to theology. Um, he said that, Be assured that one who is now our defending lawyer will then be our judge. Can it be that we have him as our defender and yet fear him as our judge? He gets to play both. Now, as if all of this wasn't enough to chew on, Jesus has a little bit more for us to consider. He finishes by asking, haven't we read Scripture? And he's no longer talking about Isaiah, but he's, he's talking about Psalm 118. He says in Psalm 118, verses 22 through uh, 23, if you remember... Uh, or sorry, hold on. Uh, sorry, 22 through 23, the stone which the builders reject, this became the chief cornerstone. This came, 
about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you remember um, in Psalm 118, verse verse 26, that was cited just a couple weeks ago for for, for what was Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding the donkey, and they're, they're, uh, the, the crowd um, is, is cheering him. They think that they have a political Messiah. They have a political Savior here. Somebody who's going to restore Israel as the kingdom it once was. And as he came into the city, the crowd gathered, quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus is now quoting it right back to them. Just a few verses before Psalm 118.26, which they were quoting to him, he quotes back saying that he is the cornerstone that the builders reject. These um, same people will be chanting crucify him in just a few days. He is the son sent by the vineyard owner. He came in the name of the Lord and yet he will be killed. He will be rejected. And by his death, we will receive our inheritance. We will receive inheritance of the vineyard. It passes to us. By his death, he becomes the chief cornerstone on which it will be built. He is the center of the story now. The, those who receive death and those who, um, and, and then those who receive the kingdom. So many things come together right now to help form uh, to help paint the picture of a cross that's about to happen in just a few days. We have the mighty wrath of God and the immense love of God all happening on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is the wrath against sin, against the sinful world. And yet, the expression of love by sacrificing his one son on that cross to take that wrath, the lion and the lamb all coming together here. He's bringing the happy ending. We no longer have to live an Isaiah 5 existence because we have a Mark 12 Savior. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you, God, that that we have a God of justice and wrath. A God who is not indifferent to sin, not indifferent to evil, but also a God of, of love. A God who loves so much that you would send your only son to be killed, to be rejected. But that by doing that in your holy design, that we would become inheritors? God, thank you for making us part of your plan. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for being a God worthy of our worship. And God, thank you that, that, that we have such a picture here in Mark 12 of exactly how you are the lion and the lamb. 
the change that happens from the bad news to the good news, from the sad ending to the happy ending. We thank you so much. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.